Hello, my name is Louise Newsom, and you're listening to the Trade and Prosper podcast channel, where we share the stories of individuals and businesses that make our communities. We believe in those that are committed to doing well by doing good, using their hands, minds, and hearts to create a better place for us all, and believe that a little sweat and a lot of sharing turns a community into a populace of prosperity. Trade and Prosper is a forum where those like-minded individuals meet to trade ideas, information, goods, and services, as well as building long-lasting relationships that enable them to expand their reach locally and also globally. On this episode, you will meet John Cox of Quirkus Cooperage, situated in High Falls, New York. John, a self-taught cooper, barrel maker, had 25 years in a wood shop before starting this business, which supports the growing craft whiskey industry in the Hudson Valley and New York State. His father and grandfather were tool and die makers, so he was not a stranger to fabricating and jig work. John, a walking encyclopedia of information, not only about the craft itself, but also its long history. Explain Cooperage and Cooper, John, to all of us. Uh, Sure. I'm a Cooper. And, uh, you know, in the Middle Ages, you were named from your trade. If you milled wood, you were a miller. If you sawed the wood, you were a sawyer. And Coopers made coopered vessels. And a coopered vessel, we see them all the time. Uh, It's anything from a silo to a hot tub. It's a water tower. It's a tank. Uh, But most specifically, it's a barrel. We, uh, that means we cut the wood at an angle, and when that wood is pressed together with metal rings, uh, it holds liquid. There's no glue or no screws. Uh, so what are you specifically making these barrels for? Right, so I'm what they call a tight cooper, and I hold liquid, and I make whiskey barrels. They're toasted and charred, and uh, I make them for the craft distilling trade here in uh, New York State. Tell us a little bit of why you decided to open the cooperage. Was it about a year and a half ago? Uh, yeah, I went into production two years ago, but I started buying wood and doing research about three and a half years ago. We are sort of here at the Hudson Valley. We're on the edge of the Catskills and the Shawangunk Ridge. And uh, we are right over the hill from Tuttletown. And they helped sort of spear this craft distilling movement. They're one of the originators. And uh, the distilling trade has a unique feature, and they are federally mandated to use new charred barrels. They can't reuse the barrels here in America. So with just 160 here in my state, Um, When I got involved, there was a barrel shortage in America and uh, New York and Washington State, which hold a lot of distilleries, were feeling that. At that point, um, you know, the the cooperage industry was basically based out of Kentucky and in, uh, you know, California for the wine region. But Kentucky had some of the larger cooperages and they weren't really paying much attention to the smaller boutique distillers that were popping up. And about five years ago, some of the uh, smaller cooperages had 18-month lead times. So if you did all your paperwork and got your license and you're ready to distill, you'd have to wait 18 months for a usable barrel. That has changed now, but there was a crisis when the, the craft distilling exploded, but some of the ancillary companies like Coopering that helped support it weren't ready to support it. Hmm. So is there a specific type of wood that you need to be using for these barrels? Uh, yes, there is. And uh, in fact, as you mentioned earlier, I'm the owner of Quercus Cooperage. Uh, Quercus is Latin for oak. Uh, Quercus alba is white oak. Quercus roja is red oak. And uh, my Jesuit roots had me study Latin for a long time. So, 
So we're named Quarkus here, and that's because we use white oak. Um, in fact, we use quarter sawn white oak. Quarter sawn means to cut the log into a quarter. Gives you a pie-shaped piece, and then the wood is extracted from there. By cutting the log in that way, gives you a watertight cask by turning the grain of the wood sideways across the face of the barrel. If we didn't cut a quarter sawn, the, the pore structure of the wood would just leach out the liquid. That cellular structure there in the wood is made to move water and nutrients as the tree grows and lives. So by turning it again to its side, uh, we're able to hold water tight. White oak, uh, if you're familiar with Mission Furniture, Arts and Crafts Furniture, uh, you see quarter sawn white oak and they use that, what's called a medullary ray, as a decorative element. These are diagonal squiggles you'll see on the wood, and it's a distinctive look of Mission Furniture. Well, those squiggles make up about 28% of the white oak. And in there are little gate valves. As the tree grows from early wood to late wood, those gate valves close. Um, it's what's called a tyloses. Uh, white oak is one of the few woods that has a large tyloses count, and because of that, um, it's used for barrels and has been for 2,000 years. You're not going to see mahogany barrels or poplar barrels or pine barrels. Hmm. Um, with a few exceptions. Right, and, and where are you sourcing? I'm sourcing local. I'm using uh, New York wood. We recently brought in some Pennsylvania uh, wood for our headstock, but it's all local. Um, I'm here at the top of the Appalachian Trail, and that's where the white oak uh, grows. If we went about two hours north in the Adirondacks, you would not find the white oak. Uh, it grows along the Appalachian Trail. It grows in Missouri grows in Minnesota. So we're pretty close. Um, the problem isn't getting the wood, well, luckily because of my location. The problem is sawing the wood, as I spoke earlier about quarter sawn. 95% of American mills cut a long, flat slab. You've probably seen it before, somebody out back cutting the wood into these long slabs, beautiful pieces. That's not the way the log needs to be cut for barrels. So there's specific people who do this who are they're called stave mills, and they, uh, you know, they make wood for coopers. Most cooperages are just assembly plants um, getting the wood. But because we're small, uh, we're a boutique cooperage, I'm able to buy my own logs local, and I have someone who mills them up for me. And uh, so we're using local air-dried wood. Uh, another complicating aspect of coopering is the wood needs to be air-dried. So that means it has to season outside for at least 24 to 36 months so that we can bend it. And uh, we can talk a little bit about that if you'd like. Right. Well, definitely want to get into the whole like bending of the wood because that's... And, sure, and yeah. the fact that you use no glue. <laughs> right. And it's got to be watertight. Yes. <laughs> and even the smallest hole will allow a cask to empty very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Disaster when you're yeah. dealing with a commodity like whiskey and bourbon and even wine. Are you making casks for wineries? Uh, as well? No, we're hoping in 2019 to start making wine casks. We, uh, we've decided to focus all our early templates and jigs for a 30-gallon charred whiskey barrel. Uh, we've made a few oddities. We recently did a 2,500-gallon uh, barrel for someone who was decorative grade. And we also make tanks. We make large... Uh, fermenting tanks. We just made two 800-gallon tanks. Uh, the difference between a tank and a barrel is that the barrel has a bilge to it. We can talk about why that is. You know, it swells in the center, where a tank is just a straight column. Uh, the tanks are basically very tall hot tubs. The distillers use this to ferment their mash in, and uh, 
fact, prior to the prohibition, everything was wood. The still was wood, the tanks were wood, and so pe some people want to do a more traditional uh, mash fermentation, and uh, we're helping them with that. Uh, because we're a cooperful uh, range cooperage, we, we do barrels, we do tanks, and again, by cutting the wood at an angle, we're able to hold liquid. And how many uh, distilleries are you servicing with your barrels at this time? About three. Uh, one of them is a very large client. We give him six barrels a week, um, and he's been buying our barrels for two and a half years at Stout Ridge Distillery in Marlboro. Um, in fact, just today we finished a 125 barrel order for him that he did um, when we first started out, and we're on to our next uh, sizable order with him. Uh, in about two months, he's going to have two year uh, Empire Rye coming out of our barrels, uh, New York uh, White Oak. That's really cool. So, John, I mean, there's the whole history behind you. I mean, you know, oh, yeah. of how you got here. So oh, sure. Just yeah. explain a little bit about just your education. And, you know, I know that you were living in Manhattan, in Red Hook, actually. For uh, uh, yeah, we lived in Brooklyn, yeah. Um, I was born in Philadelphia. And if I try, I can get my accent back. But uh, <laughs> And I was studying uh, jazz in college at Temple University. And... Uh, I really didn't have the chops, but I met a guitar maker, a flamenco guitar maker, um, who also did antiques, and I was 18 and I started working in his shop. Uh, my father, uh, his father, and his father before that all owned machine shops. I come from three generations of uh, tool and die makers. They would make machines um, during the war years and after they made stuff for the government. And uh, they were constantly making things, but uh, I didn't want really to get into the metal, and I was drawn into the wood shop and started making uh, guitars. I was an aspiring luthier. I was doing harp and dulcimer repair for someone. The recession hit in the late 80s, and there was a lot of wood shops everywhere. So uh, it was easy to get space. I, I rented a wood shop from somebody who went back into the business sector and, um, and did a lot of refinishing and started doing cabinet making. And I did that until I was from 18 to 24 in Philadelphia. During that time, I worked for a lot of famous studio furniture makers. The studio furniture movement was kind of at its imperial period. And a lot of people had come to Philadelphia and there was many galleries doing large scale studio furniture, furniture as art. A lot of them had worked with Wendell Castle, um, a really famous furniture maker who later on in my career I would get to work with. At 24, I left Philadelphia and went to New York City. Uh, I went to the East Village, and I was the foreman of a shop overlooking the river, doing high-end custom interiors, and specifically uh, a decorative finish technique called Cheroux's Doke. I've been working with oak my whole life. A Cheroux's Doke is a decorative pour fill. You might have seen it uh, where there's white in the pour of the wood, yeah. or it's black it's with like white. It's Right, and uh, yeah, so they call it Cheroux's-ing, and uh, it was popular in the early 20th century with French designers. And at this time in the 80s, the designers were bringing the look back. Uh, Coming from the Latin for white lead, which is cerusite. Right. And uh, in the 16th and 17th century, this white lead would not only be wiped on furniture for a decorative look, but they would put it on their skin and use it as, a, as makeup. As, as makeup, yeah. In Victorian times, they'd make them look pale. Right. Um, and they would get lead poisoning because it was white lead. <laughs> So the term became known as ceruzed, uh, to ceruze the wood, and uh, we had a shop in the West Village, and uh, we did that for two designers who were helping uh, you know, push that look. 
you obviously have extensive experience around shaping wood, working with yes. wood. Mm-hmm. But we both know, because we've talked about this, that there is no book on how to make a barrel. There is not a book. It doesn't exist. It needs to be yeah. done. Yes. <laughs> That's right, yes. So how did you learn to do this? Right. Well, yeah, there's not much literature. This trade dies around the turn of the century, prohibition, corrugated cardboard, the shipping container all, or the death knell to the barrel industry. And no one wrote a book. It was handed down from generations. I recently had an older Irishman in here uh, who was formerly trained in Ireland, you know, 70 years ago and when it was still a trade in the union. So I learned, um, I quickly realized online that there was nothing there. Um, There was rudimentary geometry at play that I knew a little bit about. Um, Wood turners, when they want to make a large column, will make a coopered glue up. Uh, to make a long piece that they can then turn on the lathe. And we've done different things. In fact, uh, a picture frame is a coopered polygon. A polygon hmm. is a shape of any size. A, a picture frame are four pieces of wood cut at a 45 degree angle. That's due to a rudimentary mathematical calculation. And the frame wouldn't be right if it was 42 degrees or 48 degrees. The, the basic formula behind that Uh, extrapolated a larger scale is how a barrel is made. So it's to create a specific polygon or shape by using a determined amount of pieces uh, cut at a specific angle in relation to the number of pieces being used. So how did you figure out that specific angle? (laughs) Uh, I figured that out, but what I couldn't tell was how things like the head of the barrel sits in there and, and how the staves are curved. I started to buy tools. At this point, um, I have a five-man cabinet shop. We've moved upstate. Um, we're still servicing the Upper West Side of New York, just as we did in Brooklyn. Uh, after 9-11, we moved upstate. So we've been upstate for about 11 years, and I started getting interested in the cooperage. And we had the machinery here. We had the, in- we had the infrastructure of a wood shop. It was just geared toward making decorative casework and interiors. We were building for the architectural trade. I was lucky enough to find a collection of tools from a museum in Ottawa that was deassessing their collection. Wonderful collection of hand tools, and I bought a large amount of them and brought them in, and at the same time bought about four or five barrels from different people, took them apart, measured the staves, why'd they do this, why'd they do that, it was like a cipher, and then figured out from the tools, okay, someone did this all day long with this hand tool, how can I do the same thing using some of my industrial machinery? Uh, The barrel has about five different systems that are coming together. There's bent wood, that wood is cut a specific way. There's a head, that head is inserted in a specific way into the barrel. There are steel bands that need to be rolled to hold that together. So it was a series of systems that we had to learn. Uh, I have very smart uh, peers and meddling woodworking friends, and it was one puzzle after another. I then decided that I was getting serious, and I went to a cooperage in Minnesota called Black Swan Cooperage. They make about 42 barrels a day. They have about 20 people working there. Um, That's actually a small-scale cooperage, 42 a day. Some of the larger ones are making uh, 2,400 a day. Now, do they have different machinery. Absolutely. My machinery is very rudimentary, mid-20th century machines, as you can see, along with the hand tools. Uh, The industry, like most others, has, you know, been revolutionized, been automated, been computerized. Do you think your barrels are better? 
I don't know if they're better. You know, somebody said there's a specific taste to them just because of my process and how I do it and the fuel that I use. And I don't know if they're better. I know that they don't leak. <laughs> well, that and is the news. Yeah, and I know that the wood is local, so I'm providing a local terroir to... Uh, to my customers. What that terroir is is still sort of undeterminable. We have this word, but what is it really? You know, how do you, if we talk about the terroir of the Hudson Valley, like, is, that a, is that a specific taste? What does that mean? So um, I think they're good. My client is very happy with what's coming out of them. I'm not overpowering the spirit. Um, and it's maturing nicely in the wood. Again, I based all of this on these hand tools. I in no way decided to reinvent the wheel. I didn't decide that I was going to bring a unique outside-of-the-box feeling to it um, that's been done for 2,000 years in a very specific manner and that was what my goal was and that's what I'm proud of so I know that they're well made and that they don't leak <laughs> That's great. Yeah, no, so let's talk about the toasting. Because, of course, you know, anyone oh, yeah. that visits a cooperage, sure. or, and that's the piece that they get really excited about because they, get they really see excited. that barrel burning. And yes. So, burning the wood, I mean, it's really a very important part of all this. It is. In fact, we do three different sort of heated wood elements in making the barrel. So, I'll talk to you about them. We talked about how it's air dried. Well, Okay, so when I was a cabinet shop and you came to me and asked for a walnut dining table, I would go buy kiln-dried walnut and we would make you a table. Because it had been stabilized and dried in a kiln, the wood was then stable and wouldn't turn into a piece of macaroni or twist around. That's great. And that's why your kitchen cabinet door stays straight. straight. Yeah. <laughs> Once that has been put into the kiln, the structure of the wood crystallizes. It gets very hard. When that happens, uh, someone like a cooper, I can't bend that wood. It's already been crystallized. So that's why we air dry the wood. We air dry it so I can bring the moisture content down to the level that I want, because the tree is very wet when it's cut. So we're bringing it down. And how'd you test that? We have moisture testers that we test when the wood is ready. And boat builders are the same way. Boat builders and coopers right. share um, a specific thing. They're bending oak to keep the water out and we're bending oak to keep the water in. in. <laughs> so they use air dried wood also, and wood turners will also use air dried wood. So we have to air dry our wood. So my first step to bend the wood is that I have to steam it. So I'm introducing heat by steaming the wood. Um, I wet the wood and for about 45 minutes over a small open fire of the same wood that I'm using, um, I steam the wood to get it pliable. The wood is like a bundle of straws, okay? And those pieces of straws are held together by a membrane called uh, lignin. And that lignin is a sort of a gelatinous organic compound. By steaming and heating the lignin, I'm softening up a little bit so that I can bend it. I then toast the barrel. I'm toasting the barrel for two reasons now. A, I want to harden the lignin, just like it happened in the kiln before. And that sets the barrel. That means that if I were to take the rings off of the barrel, the staves wouldn't wang back to straight. Hmm. I've, I've set them, I've toasted them. I'm also now toasting the sugar that's present in some of these things I've talked about, the lignin and the medullary rays. They hold cellulose and hemicellulose. Uh, these sugar compounds start to add different flavor profiles as I toast the wood. The distiller is very specific on his toasting level and then his charring level. If we were making wine barrels, we'd also be toasting uh, the wood uh, for different protocols that they have in the wine industry. They stop after toasting and the barrel is ready uh, to be headed. 
uh, in the whiskey industry, uh, they then want the barrel charred. So the charring happens when the barrel is complete. Uh, the charring happens uh, right in this stage here. You can see a barrel here right. next to us for you listeners. We're looking at a open barrel with no top or bottom. And we can see the inside. It almost looks like charcoal. The inside's alligatored. Um, this is why your whiskey is brown. Vodka, gin, tequila, things that aren't aged in wood are clear. When the whiskey goes into the barrel, it is clear. It's like moonshine, which is a, a type of whiskey that isn't aged in a barrel. Um, when it interacts and matures inside that barrel, it pulls that char and it gives it its brown color. So the amount of char and mm -hmm. the amount of time that it sits in the barrel is going to affect the flavor profile. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so back to our process, we've toasted the barrel, now we're going to char it. I introduce about 1300 degrees for about 30 seconds inside the barrel. I use a small handful of sawdust and air uh, to create a sort of hyper vortex of flame. And this introduces enough heat to char the inside of the barrel without setting it on fire. I like to say that I'm not burning the wood, I just have the wood very close to something hot. <laughs> uh, and that gives us an immediate charred surface. Um, we also then char the heads. Uh, the heads make up 25% of the interior surface of the barrel, and it's important that we char those also. Um, we have five different char levels, and again, the distiller will ask us what level. It's almost like he's ordering a steak. He wants it medium rare, or he wants it well done. So we do it according to their uh, flavor profiles. Both of these processes bring out all the different flavors you taste when you drink your whiskey, whether it's smoky or sweet, or if you taste a little vanilla, or if you taste a little chocolate or chili, it's all by manipulating the length of toasting and the length of the charring. How do you keep it consistent? Uh, we time it. Right. Uh, we use time. There are machines out there that have digital propane burners, but uh, you know, some people will say the propane introduces uh, nitrous oxide or a carcinogenic uh, surface area inside the wood. I don't know if it does, but I do know that we don't use it. We use sawdust, and uh, I create a fire using that. And I'm, as we're milling up the wood for the barrel, it's making so much sawdust and cut off. So we're able to harness that as our fuel to do the toasting and the steaming and the charring. Right. So, I mean, you see your waste is minimal. The waste is minimal. We try to use it. Uh, we char some of it as little uh, bottle inserts. We sell to different bartenders and uh, charred wood, and we use it uh, all around the shop, yeah. Thank you for joining me today on Trade and Prosper. For more information on our organization and to listen to more podcast episodes, head over to tradeandprosper.com. Also, follow us on social media for the latest news, events, and posts about a business near you.